Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. And now our second session, which is called Bright Ideas. And it's rather more solipsistic than the previous session in that people, these bright, ideary, overeducated people, go up to the lectern and talk for not more than seven minutes. And what they're going to talk about is bright ideas for London. They're all very London engaged, but snapshot views of London which are non Olympic and non Jubilee. And um, my co chair in this enterprise is Rosamond Irwin, and uh, Rosamond Irwin is the London Evening Standards knitwear and nightwear uh, uh, correspondent. <laughs> um, uh, and she did PPE, and then she did population and development of the LSE. So you would have to become knitwear and nightwear, wouldn't you? And she worked on the city desk, and she's been economist for two years, and she's about 13. Um, <laughs> but there you are. Anyway, and I'm going to introduce the first of our speakers, who is, you know this thing about your name, there's a special word for it, your name defines what you do. Somebody was telling me all about this this week, and it's called like, something like proximacity. But anyway, and Michael was saying that maybe his, his name, Michael Berlin, had influenced his choice of work. Anyway, he is a London historian. He is the London historian. He teaches the history of London at Birkbeck, London. And um, Michael is going to have a bright idea. And well, he's from the Americas, so yes, you have to be yes. very nice to him. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Um, yes, I wasn't, as you'll no doubt guess, born within the sound of Bow Bells, um, but you'll all be aware of the cliche that it sometimes takes an outsider to understand uh, what makes uh, a city distinctive, uh, and uh, my broad idea is not really an idea, it's a thing, which I'll tell you about in a moment, and I'm adapting the, uh, a question around the thing, which is what makes London special, and I'm adapting it from another outsider, a far more illustrious outsider, who you've probably not heard of, is a man named Steen Eiler Rasmussen, who was a great Danish town planner and architect of the 1930s, who wrote a book before the war called London, the Unique City. It's been reprinted many times. I think it's out of print now. And for him, London was unique because unlike any other great European site, it was the archetype of a scattered city, decentralized, never dominated by one institution or person. It was a liberal, open city which bore none of the hallmarks of absolutist continental town planning. Let me begin just by sharing with you uh, my own outsider's view of what makes London special. I came here today uh, from North London on the A10, which is a bu busy thoroughfare which follows uh, the old Roman road to Lincoln, otherwise known as Ermine Street. And traveling on the A10 is a bit like going through a horizontal archaeological dig of human history. You start in suburban Enfield just by the uh, post-war Greenbelt, and you go past uh, Tottenham Hotspur grounds and the epicenter of last summer's riots. Then you're up at Stamford Hill, where uh, there are about 30,000 
um, Hasidic Jews, ultra-Orthodox Jews, and then you go down past the trendy left ghetto of Stoke Newington <laughs> into Dalston, which has this uh, amazing uh, collection of Turkish restaurants uh, and some of London's last remaining industry in the form of sweatshops. And it then uh, feeds past Ridley Road Market, which sells food and clothing from as far afield as Dakar and uh, Eastern Anatolia and further afield. And there's a bakery in the market which offers what I think is my object. It's a, a hybrid. It's a bagel with filling of ackee and saltfish. <laughs> and this long-established Caribbean area, Afro-Caribbean area, is now, of course, undergoing rapid transformation as a result of the building of the East London Line. The route goes on from there down into a new enclave, of a micro-enclave of little Vietnam, and then reaches the city. And when it reaches the city, it goes past the Ronson Tower, the Heron Tower, and past medieval churches with odd names, Ethelberg, St. Ethelberg, and St. Botolph, before reaching the spot where the Roman province of Britannia was ruled, the Forum. Now, why I think that's important, why I think it's interesting and, and worthy of our attention is that there can be few places in the world which have witnessed 20 centuries of human traffic yet still retain their role as a global center. Beijing and Istanbul are probably older, uh, but they lack London's global reach, and certainly its mix. So the question is, what does the Akin Saltfish Bagel tell us about London's adaptability, its uh, capacity for reinventing itself? It's gone from being on the periphery of Roman civilization to being the commercial center of the world and the center of the world's largest empire, and yet it's lost that status. Its demography is very interesting and important in the sense that it has gone from being a city of fewer than 50,000 people in the reign of Queen Elizabeth to being, in the 19th century, the largest city in the world, a city which surpassed ancient Rome. Now, that might sound somewhat banal, but in fact, in the 19th century, London was not merely the largest city in the world, it was the largest city in which human beings had ever lived, and therefore, it's of world historical importance, the experience of living in, governing, building a city on this scale involved an unprecedented collective human experiment. And it's London's ways, it's traffic, it's social problems demanded unprecedented solutions. Observers such as Rasmussen noted how London solved the problems of growth by seeking to humanize the city with a scheme such as Hampstead Garden Suburb and the London County Council Boundary Estate, now rapidly gentrifying as a result of the Hoxton effect, becoming the model visited around the world for European garden cities and American schemes of workers' flats. Rasmussen and others saw in London a powerful model of urban life. They noted the dynamic of an independent urban government in close proximity to the seat of national power. And it must be truly unique, if you think about it, that the city of London, one of the hubs of 21st century global capitalism, is governed by an independent polity which traces its origins back to before the Norman Conquest. And London politics, whether under Dick Whittington or Ken or Boris, has always been characterized by showmanship, the politics of the crowd, and the interaction of the local and the national. London is, by its very nature, and has to be pluralistic. It is unique in its combination of political, economic, and cultural clustering. In American terms, it combines New York City, Washington, D.C., and L.A.
it has survived and thrived by its adaptability. In this last century, it reinvented itself at least twice uh, as an economic center in the aftermath of the, the both world wars and the loss of empire as the docks closed it reemerged in the late 1950s as the center of euro dollar and later petrodollar related trading and of course in the 1980s in living memory electronic trading the use of english as an international language and the felicitous location of london between time zones enabled it to become a global economic hub once again what's remarkable is how in the age of virtual communications, of cloud sourcing and so on, how older ways of interacting, how face-to-face -face contacts born in coffee houses and taverns and pubs still resonate in the city. We still need to see one another and talk one another. And it's this pluralism that I want to stress. It's reflected in its look. London's eclecticism as a city its architectural styles, it's not dominated by any one period, means that it's permanently malleable. The Great Fire destroyed the medieval city, but it was rebuilt on the original layout and retained its street names. Today, Georgian squares of the West End are overlooked by glass and steel modernism. St. Pancras, revived neo-Gothic, welcomes zero-star visitors. It's not a museum city like Paris or Rome. And herein is the challenge and the opportunity and the question. Defenders of the city speak of not killing the ghost that lays the golden egg. But I would maintain there are many such geese in London. The danger is that in keeping London open for business, as shards and walkie-talkies rise skywards, the little alleyways and lanes that have survived the centuries will disappear or become sterile zones. The forward march of globalization is in danger of smoothing out the city's rough edges. I defy the most hard-hearted modernizer not to admit a twinge of regret when they see a once-loved shop replaced by a Costa or a Starbucks. <laughs> and for Rasmussen and others, what made London special was not its broad boulevards, its mon monumental spaces, but its unexpected corners and juxtapositions. As a human organism, there's also a danger of uniformity. Monumental levels of let rent, income disparities, the unexpected unintended consequences of social policies such as changes in housing benefit may result, could result, in a socially monocultural city with a wealthy center and a poor periphery, like Paris but without the cafes. So my bright idea is that we ponder the paradox of the ackee and saltfish bagel and inquire into its meaning for the future. Um, so, Michael, how do you think we go about protecting those rough edges that you talked about as we do build upwards and modernize? Oh, I'm not on, am I? You are on. You are on. I am on. Yes. Well, it might be the Friesian model of uh, trying to make sure that uh, one tenancy is followed by another tenancy, that, that functions are preserved, that one place has to be, if it's a bakery, it has to stay a bakery. Might be one way of looking forward. And that's, I think that's not that uncontroversial. I think the standards. Uh, project on keeping local shops was in involved ideas of that kind, trying to preserve high streets, trying to preserve uh, the nature of areas. But it's a subtle mix, you know, in a sense um, I'm, I'm admitting there are more than one type of geese and one of them is, is the dynamism of, of the new buildings, the other is the, the small alleyways and the back streets. Hmm. But do you think also we could do with looking, um, I mean we obviously have a chronic shortage of housing in London, which is quite specific to London. Do you think that is something 
that within that we need to look at and not sort of hold on too much to the past. No, you can't dandy a city and preserve it in aspect. Uh, you have to build new housing. Uh, it's a question of where and for whom the new housing is built. Um, and moving on to Ben Rogers, um, he's described here as a writer and policy analyst with a particular focus on citizenship, social capital, public service reform and the built environment. But um, don't let you put that off, I've read lots of wonderful <laughs> things he's written. Um, and obviously director of the Centre for London uh, for Demos, and if you want to tell us your bright idea on this very gloomy day in London, Thank brighten you. us up. Thank you. <clears throat> right. My, my bright idea is, is very simple, it's that London should be given more power to sort out uh, its own problems. And my starting point is that actually the, the mayorality, which we only got you know, 10 years ago, has been a great uh, success. Did anyone here vote for both Ken and Boris in, in the elections? <laughs> and I haven't met anyone that, that did, but I did hear about someone the other day, and I told a colleague about this person who voted for both, and he said, oh, she's an idiot. Mm. And I said, no, why? She said, well, once mm. you voted for, for one, your, your second vote is, is, is wasted because you know that you know, it's going to be between those two at the end. And, and I, said, I said, I disagreed. I think it's a perfectly, perfectly reasonable argument that actually they're both shown that they're uh, able leaders of London and the, uh, the others are, are, are untested. And it makes perfect sense to say uh, you want one uh, most, and if that one doesn't win, then you want the other. Um, but the point is, I think, actually, you know, they both have been. Um, uh, I think it's a great thing for London that actually two of the best known politicians um, in the UK uh, are both outside Parliament and they're both leaders uh, of London. Uh, only 5% of Londoners want to see the abolition of the GLA. And it's quite hard to think of a recent uh, sort of you know, policy reform uh, where only 5% of the people um, would want to see it reversed. When I first set up the Centre for London, which is the new think tank for London, I spent a lot of time just going around to people talking about what the issues were facing London and how the, uh, the mayor had done. And, and you know, the, the message that came through really loud and clear, clear was that, 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 the, that the, the mayor had been good for London and London had taken real strides uh, underneath, un, underneath Ken and, and then Boris. I had a conversation with Bloomberg's, correctly enough, Bloomberg's, um, deputy Mayor for Planning, you know, and he said, you guys stole the idea of the mayor from New York, and ever since then we've been running to catch up. Mm -hmm. uh, so this morning, Stephen, Stephen Barber mentioned uh, Ed Glaser, who's probably the world's leading urban economist, uh, who wrote a, a very good book um, last, published last year called The Triumph of the City. Now, Glaser was actually a sort of rather right-of-center economist. I think he probably would once have been a Republican before the Republicans went completely crazy. Um, and, uh, and, and, and actually one of the heroes of, his, of his, this book, though, is Ken Livingston. And, and what both Glaser and, and Bloomberg's uh, Deputy Mayor for Planning admired in, in what uh, Livingston had done was the congestion charge, um, the ambitious targets around uh, density, uh, the commitment to um, uh, increasing the supply of affordable homes, uh, and indeed to simply winning um, large, uh, large sort of sums of um, investment from from central government, which really sort of did, you know, I think represent a sort of step change um, in the way London, uh, London, um, you know, was sort of perceived around the world, and the way London has has sort of performed as a city. Um, so, uh, so I think, you know, I think a good story um, so far, but I still think uh, compared to other comparable cities, most obviously New York, um, the mayor 
uh, has relatively few powers. I mean, the GLA is actually a pretty sort of feeble, a pretty um, feeble beast. And, and, and that really matters if you think how important London is to the UK, indeed the European economy, and how distinct all the sort of issues that London faces are. I mean, they're completely different from the sort of uh, issues um, facing uh, most other cities across the UK. So I want more power for the mayor, more power for the GLA. What powers uh, does the mayor need? Um, I think uh, clearly one is over education. It seems to me that Michael Gove is a great centralizer under the name of localism, under the name of freeing uh, schools from the sort of shackles of local authority control. He's actually centralizing a lot of power himself. We recently had the fairly sort of grotesque spectacle of Michael Gove getting into an argument with the head teacher of a Haringey primary school. Uh, I mean, that just seems to be the sort of, you know, the wrong gap. All successful education systems actually have a sort of middle tier between the state and the school. Um, and it seems to me there's a strong argument for saying that the mayor should have much more control. Not actually, we don't want to return to the days of the ILEA, but we want to return, we want something where it's, it's the mayor of London who's setting the curriculum for the school, who's, who's scrutinizing how they perform, who's, um, who's making decisions about uh, school placements and um, allocation systems and so forth. So we want, we want the mayor to have uh, control over London schools. I'd like to see the mayor have more control over the NHS. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, if you had a complaint about uh, the NHS, you could turn to someone other than the Secretary of State for, for health, if there was somebody a bit more local um, who was accountable for the way the NHS was run um, in London. I think it's a strong argument that London needs its own welfare system, quite distinct from the problems that the, 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 of worklessness in, in London are very different from problems elsewhere. There's a strong argument that the mayor should have more powers over that. Um, I think well, the real prize, it seems to me, is over local taxation. 80% of, uh, of the taxes that Bloomberg has in New York are raised by, by him, by the mayor in New York. A tiny fraction um, of that is raised in, in, in London. I mean, basically, the mayor has the congestion charge. That is the main way in which he gets to raise taxes. Uh, so I think there's a sort of huge, huge need for um, uh, giving the mayor real power to raise taxes. That would actually, what would that would actually do is that would incentivize him to grow the London economy because he would benefit directly from it. Currently, um, any any extra revenue that comes from growing the London economy goes up to Whitehall, and it's entirely in Whitehall's discretion whether they give it back to London or not. I mean, Whitehall could turn off the tap. I mean, it hasn't, it, the last 10, 15 years, London's done very well out of the Treasury. Uh, but before that, sort of, uh, in the 70s and 80s particularly, London was hugely starved of, 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 of financial um, of investment. Uh, and there's, no, there's nothing to prevent that happening again. So I'd like to see, um, I'd like to see the mayor having much more control over um, taxation. I personally think uh, it's very regrettable that neither Boris nor Ken uh, campaigned on a devolutionary platform. They made a sort of few noises about it, but they, they didn't campaign on it in a, sort of, in a major way. I, I had a conversation with Gita Harry, uh, Boris's head of um, comms, during the campaign. I said, why isn't Boris uh, you know, banging the drum for, for more powers for the mayor. He said, oh, you know, the public, the London public aren't interested in these constitutional niceties. They just care about bread and butter issues. Uh, well, I mean, that's not been the experience of Alex Salmond in, in, in Scotland. I think the, the trick for a, for, a, for, a, for, a, for a politician is to be able to sort of make connections and to demonstrate to the public the connections between um, more self-government and the bread and butter issues that really 
matter to them. And as I say, I think it's, I think it's a pity that neither Ken or particularly Boris did campaign for this because they now lack a mandate to go to Cameron, to go to Osborne, um, to go to his old mates and say, um, Londoners want more power for London. Nevertheless, and this is my, my final point, I think actually, uh, I think we are still likely to see more power for London, uh, and that's because, largely because of Scotland. Uh, there will be, I think, a substantial, if, if, even, even if Scotland doesn't go independent, there will be a substantial transfer of power from, uh, from Westminster to Scotland in the next uh, three or four years. And I think um, what we'll find is we'll find cities like London and elsewhere saying, well, if it's okay for Scotland, uh, it's okay for us. Um, there's very strong arguments uh, of a sort of rarefied constitutional kind why actually the only way of sort of sorting out, you know, this strange anomaly of the UK Parliament and having uh, Scottish, Scottish MPs voting on English legislation is to give much more power to the English regions and the English cities. So I think, I think there's every chance that London will get more power. That would be a good thing, but I think it's really important uh, on all of us uh, here in this room and our organisations to actually start really making the case uh, that London needs more power to sort out its own problems. Thank you. Your idea of London having the power to determine its fate pretty much lines up with having the money to determine its fate compared, um, compared with other great cities. Whose fault is it that London doesn't have command of its own enormous wealth? Well, I mean, I want to know who to blame. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Britain's always been you know, extremely sort of centralised state. We don't have a sort of federal structure. Uh, and I think, you know, I think in some ways you can blame Ken Livingstone because when, um, when Blair uh, was creating the GLA, he was so nervous mm. about the prospect that Ken Livingstone or someone like him might get into power and sort of discredit Labour clause that um, was basically a sort of what was known as a sort of Ken clause in every or Ken subclause in every clause of the, of the bill, which has made sure that if there was a, 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 a Labour mayor, um, they couldn't do anything crazy. That sounds like what we used to call blaming the victim. You know, it's TV's fault. No, of course it's TV's fault. Yes. But I mean, just to get to noble To both to Blair's credit and to Ken's credit, they have transferred more power to the mayor. And that's another indication, I think, of the fact that this has been a success. So they both, Cameron in particular, has given quite a lot more power to Boris. Every city burger believes that this city completely subsidises Barlini prison or you know, the whole of festering rest of the UK <laughs> and it would be very interesting to know how those flows work because it is absolutely believed you know, when, when the whole question of Scottish devolution became a reality everyone I met said well we're paying for them, get rid of them you know, London's paying for all those people they, they don't have any jobs or anything it would be interesting to be told. I, why, I, yes, I don't know what the figures are. But I don't know what the figures are. I mean, but you know, the point about the, point about the London economy was is if, it, if London was an independent state, it would be bigger than Sweden in terms of its economy. It is a sort of great big world economy. Yes. You know. um, bigger than Sweden, that's very shocking. <laughs> um, anyway, um, I mean, there's food for thought. Um, Nico MacDonald, it says here... <laughs> Uh, Spy and Big Potatoes co-author. Uh, Nico McDonald is a thinker and doer focused on innovation, creativity, there we have that word again, media in the city. He's a champion of the role of creative technologists in the context of the future of London's economy and the lives of its citizens. 
Well, get out of that. <laughs> <laughs> get it, uh, Nico. Uh, good afternoon, everybody, or good late morning, at least. Um, yeah, I uh, am co-author uh, of Big Potatoes, the London Manifesto for Innovation, uh, which, among other things, champions uh, taking R&D seriously and leadership and risk-taking and trusting people, not regulation, uh, and being ambitious and global in one's approach, which are all things which one can characterize London as being. Uh, and I have been warned off talking about creativity, although I think I'm going to talk about it with not caveats, but a, a different head-on today, if you like. And just uh, to Ben's point about uh, London and education, I, I would somewhat defend the ILEA uh, somewhat selfishly, because my dad worked for it in the uh, learning Resources Centre, as it was called, and it was very innovative in thinking about the future of education and new technologies when VCRs were, uh, you know, state of the art, we say. So I think we do need that kind of innovation in education, whoever controls it in London. And I think after the election and Manira Mirz has increased role, then probably there will be more power for London in that respect. Um, but I want to talk about what I will call creative technologists or creative technology um, today. Um, much has been talked about the creative industries. People will be probably sick and tired of talking about that. I think we slagged it off already in the first session today. Um, but creative technologists uh, are slightly different uh, in the sense that um, it is about uh, people who are creative who are also skilled at engineering and skilled at knowing how to make things real in the world. Um, they're people who can imagine and properly understand how to take things and make them into products, services, and environments, things which actually touch our lives in the world, and now how to find the right people to collaborate with if they don't know the answers to the questions they need answers to. Uh, they don't focus just on one area of design either. They don't focus on print, they don't focus on digital, they don't focus on product, they don't focus on communication particularly, uh, they don't focus on uh, anything in particular. They're interested in pushing the boundaries of our knowledge and the possibilities uh, for the future. Um, they're good at mastering new disciplines if they haven't mastered them already. Uh, they're good at working hard, applying themselves, which is something we do uh, increasingly rarely these days, uh, certainly in the creative industries. Um, they're good at negotiating, and not just negotiating with clients and organizations, but also negotiating uh, with uh, the kind of situations that you need to deal with in order to make things happen. Uh, they're good at wrangling things. They're good at wrangling the world in terms of material and also organizations. Uh, in order to make uh, new things for the world that we may want or we may not know that we want. Um, they're not beholden to user research uh, or product testing in the way that so much uh, of the things that we design today uh, are subjected to. Uh, rather, they aspire to create new things that we'll only know whether we want them when we've actually seen them and played with them. Uh, they're explicitly or implicitly humanistic and they expect more of us than we might expect, and certainly more than our uh, political and other leaders might expect of us. Uh, and that's the kind of aspiration that we should be uh, following. They provide de facto leadership, if not uh, deliberately or deliberatively even, uh, and a sense of ambition in an era we talked about earlier on of blandness and box ticking. And they explain in part, I think, why London is such an attractive place for people to come to and for business to come to. They create a kind of environment that people want to be working in, an environment where there is a sense of the possibilities of the future being touched. 
Now, the idea of the creative technologist is not new, and in fact, a lot of people who have been foundational in the history of London have been people you could characterize in that way. And you could go back to Christopher Wren, mathematician, engineer, architect, uh, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, entrepreneur, you can add on to those things as well. Uh, Ove Arup, uh, engineer, designer, uh, one of the most profound thinkers about the future of urban, uh, urban spaces. Or James Dyson, latterly, although uh, he emigrated to Malmesbury, started life uh, intellectually and practically in London. Now today there are lots of people that one might think of, and it's always difficult to compare modern people to these historic uh, titans, if you like. Uh, but one might think of, and this is just a small selection of the people that one might consider, uh, Durrell Bishop, uh, designer, engineer, Royal College of Art, product design graduate, um, who has been fundamental in thinking about the way in which we engage with networks, the digital, and objects and products. Uh, the studio of Berg and their research lab, who experiment with everything from new forms of media to new forms of networking in the home and new forms of communication based around print, albeit allied to the internet. Uh, Jason Brew's studio, who've created a number of installations at the Olympic Park that we may have seen or will be seeing very soon, thinking about the way in which we interact in space with a digital and network thing, but very much instantiated in architecture and public space. Uh, Manolis Kalaidis from the Royal College of Art, who's a researcher looking at the future of print and books and looking at the way in which electronic paper can <coughs> enhance the ways in which we read uh, but also provide new affordances. Um, one might think of Gregory Epps, uh, whose uh, tools, RoboFold, uh, enable new forms of manufacturing uh, and design using uh, 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 essentially panel beating for the 21st century. Or service designers, LiveWork, who try and wrangle organizations such as car sharing service Zipcar to try and integrate all the elements of technology, organization, uh, networks, location, and obviously the physicality of the vehicle into a service uh, that's appropriate to uh, new forms of thinking about transport. And I might push back a bit on Nicholas Kenyon's comments earlier on that Crossrail is an innovation in transport. It's certainly impressive. Uh, but new forms of transport at the moment we're not inventing in or for London. Uh, impressive in a service design sense as Barclays Cycle Hire indeed is. So this is an area that London is strong in, and it's strong for a number of reasons. I think those have been alluded to in the Creative Juices session and also in some of the comments made in this session. has a strong tradition of art and technology schools and often a combination between them. One thinks of innovation design engineering at the Royal College of Art, which brought together Imperial College and the Royal College of Arts almost 30 years ago now. One thinks of the humanistic approach to creativity, I think, captured in the celebration today of Terence Conran and the way in which uh, he brought uh, good design, quality uh, in the home to ordinary people. Uh, but there are many other examples of that, particularly in the post-war period and also the pre-war period. Uh, the openness to new artistic thinking and new ideas in London, although one always needs to be wary about conformity in that respect. Uh, the range of people that come to London from east, west and south we've talked about already. Um, and also the ease of getting to places, uh, all points uh, in those directions. Uh, creates, uh, brings a lot of new ideas to the city. Uh, the lack of dominance of big technology 
uh, in a way I think you see in the United States, often the discussion is, ends up being rather technocratic about the future and less imaginative uh, and there's much more space in the UK in a way as a, an upside of the downside of us not having that fundamental uh, technology uh, infrastructure. Um, Britain after the war needed to find new roles in the world uh, which led to the rise of communication design as it's now known, advertising, marketing and so on. And I think that's helped us to think more imaginatively about the kind of solutions we might create for the future. Um, I think organisations such as the BBC have been interesting in fostering new talent and releasing it into the world, often rather unhappy at the experience of being at the BBC, but nevertheless uh, somewhat more talented as a result of it. And also the Catholic nature of the city, with a small c perhaps, where business and finance and technology and creativity are brought together in a way I think we characterised in the United States as really being a combination of uh, New York and Washington and Los Angeles and San Francisco as well. Um, I think those, uh, those factors make for a very vibrant city and one which is unlike Seoul or Tokyo or New York or San Francisco or Shanghai or Berlin we've talked about a lot or Paris, although all of those cities have elements of those, uh, New York probably being the closest to London. Uh, and just to, to, to conclude uh, with one caveat, uh, I think we need to be aware of the way in which we have celebrated creative industries and generally dumbed down engineering, uh, really only celebrating the tech city coders uh, a few hundred metres north and slightly east of here uh, of Silicon Roundabout and so on. Uh, and perhaps the exception of someone like Cecil Bullman who's been in the news recently for the ArcelorMittal orbit. Engineering in its own way is a very creative lateral thinking profession and to the extent that we curry favour with creative industries people and do down uh, engineers and technologists, then we're not going to create the kind of environment where creative technologists can flourish. Um, ultimately, we do need, in this age where the domains of knowledge are very great, to find new ways in which people can learn more quickly, exchange knowledge more effectively. And there is always going to be a challenge of being a creative technologist because of the scopes of those domains, and that's a significant challenge for us. I think if we can master that, if we can retain and build on all the advantages that London has that I've described, then I think an approach to creative technology can provide a foundation for inventing the future, for creating new industries, uh, and for reviving the economy, and ultimately for helping us envision the future in ways which we're finding very challenging to do at the moment. So I would like to present my big idea in favour of creative technologists. Um, you've talked a bit about how we sort of focused on Silicon Roundabout, which obviously the press is particularly guilty of. Um, how do we sort of redress that and look at helping the engineers of the future and make sure there's a balance there? Well, I think by, by recognising that it's only really with Fundament, fundamental innovations lay the basis for the world that we live in. But the way in which they're made tangible is through design, creativity, instantiating them in the world. And in a way, everything looks very easy now. We talk about the rate of change in information and communication technology and the internet. Arguably, the rate of change is relatively low, but it's much more tangible because it's very easy to build things on the technologies we have. And in a way, we should appreciate more 
the underlying layers of technology that make the iPhone and so on possible today. And I think a more inquiring attitude among politicians and to business leaders to some extent, which I think historically you know, we've had, I think that would, that would be appropriate. Something, a sense of intrigue and, and mystery and so on. And it's not just Harold Wilson's white heat of the scientific revolution. It's a, a profound engagement with those areas. You could observe that Chinese political leaders tend to come from engineering and British political leaders from journalism, law, PR, and so on. That's a symptom, <laughs> not a, a cause, if you like, but a, a significant one. Okay, and we'll, we'll move very quickly on to Claire Clark, um, author of The Great Stink and Beautiful Lies. Who it tells me has a double first from Cambridge, which suggests you did not spend enough time at university drinking. <laughs> be my feeling there. Um, and at the end, we'll have time for questions um, from, and, and comments uh, from the audience. So uh, please do jump in and uh, make sure you do introduce yourself as well. Well, I'm going to slightly um, change the sort of tone because I think I'm not really here to talk about my bright ideas, but to talk about the bright ideas that I've taken from London's history because I've written four novels now and three of them have been inspired by London and um, the extraordinary history that London has. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the year that I've set my latest novel, Beautiful Lies, in. Because 1887, which is the year of the novel, is, it was an extraordinary year. And I know we're not allowed to talk about jubilees, but it was Queen Victoria's golden jubilee year. And it had extraordinary parallels to our own time, actually, because it was a time of great economic depression. There was a huge division between wealthy and poor. There were riots. People were looting shops in Oxford Street. We've seen that recently, haven't we? This was 1887, remember? Um, and for the first time, there was the emergence of an incredibly powerful tabloid press. So in many ways, 1887 presages our own time. But the fact that drew me into this year in the first place and made me discover all these interesting things about London was a fact that I heard completely by accident on Radio 4 one day driving in the car, which was that in 1887, Buffalo Bill, Buffalo William Cody, brought his Wild West show to Earl's Court, which had previously been a complete waste ground, and reconstructed in Earl's Court a prairie, and we, along with Red Indian camps and, um, and an entire show, uh, which took about two and a half hours, which reconstructed key events from American pioneer history. Now, what was interesting about the Wild West was it wasn't billed as a circus, which the Victorians had a lot of, by the way. You know, they were very used to entertainment so on, a, on a grand scale. But he said, he was very clear that it wasn't a circus or indeed an entertainment, but he expressed it this way, as an exact reproduction of daily scenes in frontier life as experienced and enacted by the very people who now form the Wild West Company. And that is true because, interestingly enough, most of the people in Cody's crew had themselves been involved in the Wild West. The people who took the cowboy roles had been Pony Express riders, they'd been buffalo hunters, they'd been soldiers and scouts and stagecoach drivers. In fact, Buffalo Bill had been almost all of those things. He'd had a very um, spotted career um, and um, had, had managed to go through most of those jobs by the time he brought the Wild West to London. And, Interestingly, too, most of the, and I hope you'll excuse me if I call them Indians, because that was what the Victorians called them, um, but most of the Indians were themselves prisoners of war who Cody had bought in bond from the US government. 
So he had basically paid their bail and brought them to England, and they were essentially prisoners of the US government. So these people were reconstructing battles they themselves had often been involved with. So I suppose it wouldn't be too much a leap to say that it was Britain's first reality show. Uh, it was also extraordinary in terms of being groundbreaking because it was also the first show in which PR had really, really been exploited to um, maximize a show's impact. And there was a, a very extraordinary man called Major Burke who Cody brought with him who made it his business not only to know every single journalist on every single newspaper in London, but to feed them stories. I mean, we're used to this now, PR people feeding people stories that have been written almost word for word already before they go into the newspapers. But this was an incredibly new thing in 1887. And he wrote everything from how much meat the camp consumed every day to how many trees, 20,000, had been brought from Newcastle to create the prairie in Earlscourt. He also was very good at talking up the things he thought would titillate a modern audience in 1887. So he talked a lot about how worried people were about being scalped at night by the Indians and um, that they were, they were barely um, under control and they had to be kept from alcohol because um, otherwise they might go berserk. Um, and he also, rather brilliantly, and there are wonderful photographs um, that show this, encouraged the Indians to go around London in full war paint regalia. So they put on their war paint and their feathers and they went on the omnibus to <laughs> Westminster Abbey and Windsor Castle and they went to see Faust at the Lyceum. Um, God knows, if you were sitting behind someone who was wearing full feathered headgear, you'd be pretty grumpy, wouldn't you? You wouldn't see much of the stage. But um, they were, so they were sent round as a poster, a moving poster, if you like, for this extraordinary show. And Burke, someone once famously said about Burke that he generated more PR for Buffalo Bill's Wild West in a day than the White House managed to generate for Cleveland in an entire month. So he was an extraordinary phenomenon and it worked because London went cowboy mad. And I'm going to read you a little bit from my novel and then I'm going to come back and talk to you a little bit about how that's changed things for London since then. Buffalo Bill Cody makes an appearance in this novel. He has a cameo role, but Maribel and Edward are fictional characters. And I'm not going to do Cody's American accent because it's, otherwise you'll be laughing and it's not always supposed to be funny. <laughs> uh, Cody greeted Edward like an old friend, grasping his hand and pumping it hard. When Edward was able to extract himself, he drew Maribel forward so that he might introduce her. Cody took her hand, bringing her fingers to his lips and bowed, his eyes sweeping appreciatively across her throat and chest. You never told me your wife was so beautiful, Cody said to Edward, who smiled and gingerly flexed the fingers of his right hand. My husband pays me not the least attention at the moment, and you're entirely to blame, Maribel said, laughing. He has eyes only for the Wild West. Ma'am, if that's even a little bit true, then we're set for success beyond my wildest dreams. Is there any question of that, Maribel asked? You're the toast of the town. Cody grinned. This week, maybe, till the next new excitement comes along. Whoever that is will have their work cut out. Your show is perfectly thrilling. Well, ma'am, it's the truth, and that, I think, is the secret to it. No acting or sham, just an exact reproduction of life on the frontier as we have lived it. A romantic version, though, surely, asked Maribel. Mm, there are fewer chimneys in the West, that's true, and not such a crowd of Englishmen either. But all elsewise, it's the genuine article. Maribel smiled. To her surprise, she had enjoyed herself enormously. She had not wanted to come, had complained several times to Edward when he collected her that she had not the faintest interest in cowboys. As they inched their way through the traffic to Earl's Court, her mood had worsened. 
from Kensington Railway Station, the crush of carriages had choked the old Brompton Road, the press of pedestrians seething among them like boiling porridge. The shouts of drivers and the rattle of conveyances and harnesses and the smell of drains and unwashed bodies had thickened in the unrelenting glare of the afternoon. Never had London seemed so uncongenial. And then, as if by magic, the coal smoke and choke of mean housing had cleared into a wide expanse and the city was gone. Beneath the blue sky, the spacious prairie swept upwards in waves of undulating green. At the foot of the hill were pitched clusters of white tents with pathways winding between and dotted about them the shrouded figures of Indian braves, their shoulders swathed in blankets of scarlet and blue. Behind the masses of shrub-choked rock rose cliffs steep over thick copses of trees, and further still in the distance, colossal mountain ranges shimmered purple and gold like a heat haze. If one disregarded the distant shriek of railway engines and the smoke that rose from a hundred hidden chimneys to smudge the Cerulean sky, one might almost imagine oneself in the new world. So, Cody created this extraordinary site and this extraordinary show, and he claimed it as history, but of course, all history is filtered by the people who tell it. And what's fascinating about Cody is how much he has gone on to influence our views now of cowboys and Indians and our idea of what forms the American West. It's interesting to note that Cody was a showman first and foremost. He'd appeared in lots of plays about himself on Broadway before he set up his Wild West show. And he knew how to make an impact. And he knew that Indians needed to have feathers and war paint and to come in riding ponies because they were all had wonderful tricks they could perform. The truth was, of course, that the Indians who rode ponies weren't the ones who wore feathered headdresses. But Cody didn't let that get in the way of a good story. <laughs> he also invented, rather marvellously, as a way of the Indians coming in in a very dramatic way, the war whoop. I mean, the thing that every little boy does, was totally invented by Cody because he wanted the Indians to make a massive noise as they came in to make people's blood run cold. And so the war whoop was, again, a totally invented idea. He also, as I'd said, played up this idea of Indians being a very bloodthirsty lot. He, he liked the idea that when the cowboys triumphed, it was over a bloodthirsty, savage enemy. He also, and he embodied this, created our idea of the, the American cowboy, the sort of brave, strong knights errant of the plain, who protected women in distress, punished wrongdoers, and turned the West from a savage wilderness into a safe place to live. Of course, he didn't go much into the details of the frostbite and the hunger and the dust storms and the loneliness and the criminality of the West. That stuff he wasn't particularly interested in. That didn't make very good copy. Um, but Cody himself lived the dream. He was the man who could handle any problem and defeat any foe, who made his own rules and lived life as he chose. And what's so interesting is that Cody, who invented this self and invented this history and put it on show in West London, has essentially, through his fantastic power of personality and indeed through his mammoth PR campaign, become a central idea, a central part of what we think of as America itself. And I think what's interesting about that and what reflects interestingly on our current times is that, like perhaps our reality shows now, the Wild West didn't actually reflect reality, but over time and through its enormous popularity, it's come to create reality in its own image.
Well, there it was. I mean, it's just like now, when you describe the sort of media conditions and other sort of social conditions. Could you pin it down to... It, we're talking SW5, aren't we? Yes. Now SW5. Are we... Well, let's see what... Why don't we get it down to a postcode? And we're talking about the land on which the Earl's Court Exhibition Centre now stands. We are. In the midst of, I don't know, near Colhoun Court or something. Yes. Anyway, near those stucco and... Yes, indeed. Oh, although Lon brick London had... I mean, what was striking about it was it was very definitely... Um, I suppose we would now call it brownfield development. Mm. Um, it was um, a, p a polite way of saying when Burke and Cody first came over and saw it, they were absolutely horrified because it was a wasteland. There was nothing there at all. And um, there had been a certain amount of um, very uh, jerry-built housing going up around there for workers as the railways sort of extended out. But apart from that, there really wasn't very much there at all. And they brought people to a part of London that had essentially been abandoned. So it was, an, they, and they built a, a special railway cutting for it and everything. So they, they sort of created that part of London. And it's essentially, it never stopped being a showground after that. It's been a showground one way or another since Buffalo Bill. And none of it could have happened without the presence of a new media. I think not. I mean, certainly at the time, there was something astonishing like 41 newspapers in London at, in 1887. And when Buffalo Bill left London, 39 of those newspapers put it on their front page. So he really had created this astonishing um, public relations coup, and he was invited everywhere. I mean, he, he was very clever. He also knew who to be friends with, and he very quickly befriended the Prince of Wales, with whom he played poker. Um, I, I feel that Buffalo Bill probably won, I'm guessing. Um, but he, so he was, he was very good at getting to know the right people. He became very quickly fated by everyone. He was invited to mayor's lunches and, and so forth. And he went to every single party he was invited to and still managed to turn up for two performances a day. So he, he was tireless in his efforts to secure publicity. But the newspapers were vital to him. And the newspapers, it began a, a, a relationship, which I think has, has continued in many ways, of, of the newspapers really just accepted what had been written for them and published it pretty much unchanged, um, which was very definitely a new phenomenon. So we're talking about a London which, like now, was messy and energetic mm -hmm. and um, under-governed. Um, we didn't have a mayor. Um, <laughs> under-governed, it's hard to say. I mean, there were lots of... I, I, don't think I'm, um, I don't think I'm probably know enough about it. Michael probably knows more about it than I do about the under-government, but... Well, it's about to get the LCC yeah. two years later, and that's... The under-government was one of the reasons why the, the LCC was called into being. Mm. And so it's made up of a multiplicity of uh, small district boards and parishes, and got the Metropolitan Board of Works, which, as you yeah. know, builds the sewers, but very much sort of standing away from governance as such. And this is the point at which it is clearly, the, you, I think you said, the world's biggest city, not only in contemporary life, 1887 life, but ever. Yes, it's the world's, the, the largest city in which human beings had ever lived. So in a sense, its, its experiences and its need to govern itself and to find reform itself was instrumental in reforming other places. And pretty pulling in all these people in the, in some, <clears throat> for different reasons, but 
quite like the way in which London now pulls in a lot of a lot of human beings. We then had a lot of the world coloured pink, but but over and above that. Sorry, I don't. Over and above that, there were you know we were pulling in people because it meant, not only because we because of the empire, but also mm. as a a focal attraction because we had that media ecology and everything else. I'm thinking, just thinking more and more parallels. More well, I, more I, think, I think what was interesting about Buffalo Bills, he came as part of the American exhibition, which followed on from the Great Exhibition in 1851, and, and the Americans came over with this great exhibition to showcase what America was capable of. So there was very much a sense of the new world needing to prove itself to the old world, to demonstrate its arrival, if you like, mm -hmm. to the old world. And London was the place, obvious place to do that. I mean, they went on to take Buffalo Bill's Wild West around Europe, in fact, and they took it to the provinces here too. But London's um, shows made by far the greatest impact. And the, it was telling that the Americans felt that in the old world, the singular most important place to win over was London. Can we open it up? Um, does anyone have any comments? Could I questions? just come in on something briefly? Um, I, just on the question of, of culture and so on, I've been watching Mary Beard's History of the Romans, and I think it's a very important distinction she makes in the first episode that Rome was very multicultural. People came to Rome uh, and could exist as you know, Jews or Asians or whatever, but they were expected to become Roman, and in a way, Rome absorbed and was transformed by their influence. And I think we need to be aware that in London, in the period we're talking about, it worked in a similar way, but today, I sense we have a, less of a sense of a vision of the future, even though Peter thinks we've got more of a vision than the UK has, or more of a sense of ourselves in London. And I do wonder if that transformation is critical to our future. We don't have a sense of who we are and what we're going to be, or what we might be. How does that affect our ability to shape our future? We should get the cabbies to set them tests based on the knowledge. Mm -hmm. yeah, London, London nationality test. <laughs> anyway, lady at the back there. A quick question for um, Claire. That was a fascinating talk, and I was just curious to know how um, unanimous the press was and whether it was sophisticated enough in those days to have dissenting voices like, what a, was this the real story for the um, Indians, or something like that, or the, all the articles you studied, were they completely just taking on board this Burke um, Buffalo Bill version of history without a single dissenting voice, or was there debate? And if uh, no, not, no, when no. did it start in our media? Well, it's interesting. I think that... Um, about around about the show, people were very captivated by the razzmatazz, so they did love all, all of that. What did happen was about the time of the show, and certainly in the two years afterwards, there were some really terrible atrocities going on in the US government, and much more information started to leak back. I, I think one of the interesting things was that Although initially the newspapers didn't really pick up on the fact that Buffalo Bill's version was slightly skewed, it, it generated an interest in the fate of the Indians in, the, in America, much more considerably than had been the case before. And so what you did have was a sense of people finding out more. And once they realized that the US government wasn't holding to its commitments, to Indians in reservations, that they'd been moving people out, and there were um, the, the sort of um, there was a, a last stand in America um, when one of the chieftains was killed, which were known as the ghost dances. And, and the Indians started doing these dances as a sort of desperate attempt to stave off elimination. And that inspired a huge amount of 
personal protest to letters pages in newspapers. So they started in about 1889 to be, and in fact, my um, Edward, my protagonist, is based on Robert Cunningham Graham, who was a socialist MP who wrote three very bitter letters to a newspaper called The Globe, protesting against the fate of the of the Indians. But interestingly, I think Victorians had bought into this idea of imperial superiority, and the degree to which we were invested in the idea of the white man's civilization being the dominant one underpinned so much of what was going on in the 1880s and during the scramble for Africa, of course, which was all going on at the same time, that for Victorian sensibility, the idea that the white civilization was the right civilization and would be exported to the world was very, very robust. And so the voices tended to be, um, you know, few and far between. Um, Prof Professor Woodhausen at the back there, another big potatoes person. Hello. Um, since the panel is titled Bright Ideas, uh, I thought it would be worth reminding ourselves that Electric Avenue, I believe, was electrocuted, or at least electrified, um, uh, at the same time as uh, your hero, um, Buffalo Bill, was around, Claire, in the 1880s. I wonder if the panel, thinking of Bright Ideas, has any suggestions for... Um, keeping the lights on in, in London, a uh, rather important thing uh, to do with the adequacy of energy supply. Well, I think uh, uh, this might sound heretical, but dimming the lights in offices might be one way of saving energy at night. That's exactly what I didn't want to hear. And I wondered uh, if Ben Rogers doesn't have the 20% of UK GDP figures, unless you take the metropolitan area of London, which is 30% of UK GDP. Um, of course, we could all turn the lights off in Bloomberg, although it wouldn't be Bloomberg uh, anymore. We could dim them. Uh, would perhaps the illustrious Demos consider making a map of electrical innovation in London and electrical investment in London, perhaps to the extent of putting forward the policy wonks proposal that Battersea Power Station become a power station. <laughs> okay, well we'll, do, we'll, do, we'll talk about it. That sounds great. <laughs> Can I respond very briefly? Uh, I mean, as, as a fellow big potato, I, I'm obviously spud, or might be called. Uh, I was interested to hear James Lovelock interviewed on Radio 4 the other day, who's completely in favour of nuclear power and said he'd be very happy to have one in his backyard. Uh, I think uh, less of a sense of risk aversion, if you like, in London would be a good thing. I would say creative technologists are brilliant at finding ways to do more with less, but the reality is that we actually do need more power, even if we are more efficient in the use of it, and that's, uh, that's something we need to be more ambitious about uh, taking on in, in the city and beyond. I met a man who produced nuclear power plants which were about the size of a Ford Fiesta. And we, it, we could all have had one. I was, <laughs> I was dead king. Exactly. You could run a whole town from one. More, please. Hi, I'm Giselle Green. I've recently been uh, involved in the campaign of Siobhan Benita, the independent mayoral candidate, who's also sitting here, um, who incidentally, Ben, did make a big feature of education and the need for the mayor to take a much greater role in being an educational lead in London. But my question for you is this. You mentioned that only 5% of people wanted the abolition of the GLA, but in the elections we've just had, 68% of Londoners didn't even bother to vote. So how can you explain that discrepancy? 
Well, uh, I'm sure it's partly to do with the fact that the quite a familiar cast of characters, with the exception of Shabon, were, were running. Um, uh, but I think the sort of the public are actually able to make a distinction between, you know, support for an institution which will go on whether they vote or not, and uh, turning out for an election which they think perhaps isn't that that important. Um, but you know, it's, it's it's sort of well attested that you know that the public do turn out when they think there's something important at stake, when they think that there's not much to choose between the candidates, um, they decide to turn out. You know, I think that's, that was the feeling this time. And that's partly because you know the public also know that actually the mayor the mayor has a great deal of soft power. You know, I mean, we probably wouldn't have won the Olympics without a mayor, you know, so that's not, not, written, not written into the description, the job description of the mayor that he should sort of, you know, front campaigns for, for, um, uh, for you know, Olympics, but uh, yeah, the mayor has a lot of soft power, but very little sort of hard power, and I think the public is sort of wise to that. I mean, basically the mayor runs the police, the mayor runs Transport for London and increasingly has some say uh, over power over housing, but it's, it's, it's a pretty poor, pretty poor show. And I think there was a very funny thing about the fact that the two main candidates were bitterly hated and feared by their respective parties, <laughs> um, uh, which meant there's an another bit of London exceptionalism. Uh, yeah. So if you were straight down the line, Labour or uh, Conservative knee-jerk voter, you would have found it very hard. You know, like people saying to me, hold your nose and vote for Ken, which is what I did, but nonetheless... I would have liked a more mainstream Labour person. More, please. Thank you. It's um, Tim Johns. A question again for Ben, really. Um, as someone who's worked in London for over 25 years but has always lived just outside, I'm one of the many people who uh, come to Waterloo every day and commute. As you talk about uh, greater wealth creation and greater powers for the mayor, how do you square that with the disenfranchised? You mean, you mean, sorry, you mean commuters? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think you can, because what you could possibly do was sort of, you know, expand London outwards, which you ne wouldn't necessarily want to do, because then it becomes, um, then it becomes too big. But actually, it was a really sort of boring technical point. But I think uh, commuters now, the, the outer, the, the boroughs outside London or the municipalities outside London now sit on the board of Transport for London. They do have some sort of some sort of voice in that, but it, it doesn't do you very much. But that's just, you know, there is there, there is no there is there is no. Um, Way of sort of drawing uh, the um, area around a sort of boundary, which which works for everything. It's just life just isn't like that. Um, I mean, just one sort of other point I suppose I want to make, which is that, and this goes back to your point about London being undergoverned. I mean, of course, we all want to live in cities which are undergoverned rather than overgoverned. Um, but London has been it hasn't been lots of imagination ever, I think, about the way London's sort of governed. I mean, if you look in the 19th century, what, you know, the Birmingham and, and the mm. big industrial cities, they took enormous, they were sort of civic republican, there was enormous pride in, mm. in, 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 um, in self-determination, and they invested hugely in their town halls, and, you know, it was, it, they, they, these, were, these were little sort of civic municipalities. London has always been overshadowed by the existence of Westminster. If you were interested in sort of politics and you were a Londoner, you know, you went into national politics, you didn't go really into, um, into local government. And, and, and actually, I think that's sort of, sort of reflected in the campaigns we've just seen, where yeah. I thought Boris and Ken actually were, were both, ran really sort of poor campaigns, completely lacking in vision. I mean, they sort of almost, sort of t they'd, they'd, they'd taken the remit that Blair gave them, which is you're in charge of transport, and you're in charge of, 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 of policing, and that's what you can do. And that's what they talked about. They didn't present us with a sort of, you know, powerful vision of the sort of London that they wanted to create. Uh, I, think, I think that's true, and I think also it, it works both ways, because the way London's presented in, in media, with honorable exceptions in, in local, say, the, the standard, is that, that the London 
London's either a stage for national politics or it's a very local uh, parochial story, but there's nothing actually about London itself. If you look at the way London's presented in the national news or in local BBC news, it's, it's, it's coming from North America. Could, the way it's covered in BBC news, it could be covering a relatively small town in the Midwest. <laughs> Am I being signaled at that this... Um, this panel's life is drawing peacefully to its close <laughs> because the next lot of um, the next lot arrived. So, first, enormous applause for our brilliant, bright ideas. Thank you.